Ideas are everywhere. Welcome to Lessons Learned in Marketing, the Phoenix Group Podcast. I'm your host, David Bellarive, and my very, very special guest today is Terry O'Reilly. Now, I'm sure that name's familiar to you. You might not know his long career as award-winning work or his work as co-founder of Pirate Radio and Television, but you certainly know the program Under the Influence on CBC Radio, follow-up to Age of Persuasion. Terry has a second book out. He co-wrote Age of Persuasion, and his latest book is called This I Know, Marketing Lessons from Under the Influence. Enjoy the conversation. Well, let me start by uh, thanking you so much for talking to me today. Um, you're certainly a, a someone that <laughs> needs no introduction through the um, the radio show and, and books, and now this new book. Well, thank Reading, you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Reading um, This I Know... I was, uh, I, I came to, uh, the quote from Isaac Newton came to mind of, if I've seen further, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. And um, it really is like standing on the shoulders of giants, your own experience, you share stories, anecdotes, advice. Also, a, you know, a tremendous amount of research you've done through the radio show and podcast. Yep. Who were you thinking of when you wrote this book or, or who should read this? I really wrote the book for small to medium businesses. So feisty entrepreneurs who need to market their product or their service, they don't have a gigantic marketing budget and they don't have a big advertising agency on speed dial. And the reason I wanted to to write a book for for that type of business owners because I think they have you know, I've worked with them in the past at the start of my career when I got my first job in a radio station. All of our clients, we had about 100 to 150 ongoing retail clients, all fit into that category. And then at Pirates, we had a writing department, which was very unusual for a production company, and we would do work for smaller clients that couldn't afford an advertising agency. So I came face-to-face with them again later in my career. And I realized that they were really smart they had great companies, great products, great services, but they really got no guidance when it came to strategic thinking. So I always tucked that in my back pocket saying, you know, if I, if I write another book, that's what it's going to be. And that's what this book is. It's trying to take business owners of small to medium businesses. And that could be, you know, a medium business can still be, you know, a 400-person shop or it could be a seven-person shop, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, to get them to, to give them a template on how to think about marketing, how to create not just a company but a brand. What um, what are what is the problem that you see a lot of them facing, or a lot of businesses or advertisers? What are are there traps, or uh, where do they go wrong? I, I think there are a number of traps that you can fall into. I think the the first chapter of my book is a very important chapter because I ask a very strange question, which is, <laughs> what business are you really in? Mm-hmm. And I think I, I, I see many small businesses fall into that trap immediately. In other words, and the examples I give in the book are, Molson is not in the beer business, they're in the party business. And Michelin is not in the tire business, they're in the safety business. And, you know, a whitewater rafting company isn't in the personal transportation business, they're in the personal transformation, transformation business. So in other words, what a, what a business sells and what customers buy are always two different things. And until you as a marketer can clearly answer that question of what business you're really in, what are customers really buying from you, your marketing will always be fuzzy and off point. 
So that was always my first question when I sat down from, across from a client. What business are you really in? And it was interesting to me to see whether they could answer that quickly or if they had to think about it or if they actually answered it incorrectly and just gave me the product back. Because it's never just the product. It's always the benefit. And are there, are there ways to, I guess, explore what business you're in? Or how do you, how do you for, for the people that do think that it's just a product, what, what path do you take them down? Or how do we discover that as a small business? I, I think the best marketers are the best listeners. So I think by listening to your customer base, you'll know what they're really buying because their questions will, will all be about that thing. It won't be about the product. It'll be about what that product delivers. That'll be their line of questioning. And furthermore, I think the, the answer to that question is always an emotional answer. It's always uh, laden with emotion. So when I say to you, Molson's not in the beer business, it's in the party business. Partying is about emotion. It's about having fun. And Michelin doesn't sell rubber tires. It sells the peace of mind. It sells safety, which is an emotion. So when you arrive at that answer, you'll know you're right when there's emotion attached to it. And you also then advise or ask your clients or small businesses to summarize that uh, succinctly. Why is that important? That's the elevator pitch. I think Hmm. I'm a big fan of elevator pitches, which, of course, is... um, can you sum up what makes your company absolutely unique in the time it takes to go from the ground floor to the first floor in an elevator? That's where, the, of course, that, that comes from. Um, I'm a fan of that because it forces you to encapsulate what makes you unique. It, for, it forces you to distill your thinking, distill your unique selling proposition down to a compelling line. And, and why that's important is it becomes your true north it becomes your benchmark. So whenever you do marketing down the road, and if you want to know if you're still on strategy, if it still is in keeping with that unique thing your company provides, you compare it to that elevator pitch. <clears throat> if it fits the elevator pitch, it's right. If, it, if you have to jam it into the, to, to the elevator pitch, it's wrong. So an elevator pitch becomes your true north. It becomes the bubble in the middle of the level it is, the, it is the thing that should always be the rallying point of your company. And I, in fact, I'll go further on that, too. I think the elevator pitch has to be a compelling sentence, not just a boring sentence. Yeah. And I, I mention in the book my favorite of all time, which was Wired Magazine, when they were mm-hmm. looking for funding. So Wired Magazine charts the trends in entertainment, design, and technology. I love that magazine. But when it was just an idea and the founders were looking for funding to get the magazine off the ground, they went into their first big meeting with some tough investors. And the investors said, okay, like, why should we invest in your magazine? What makes your magazine so special? And they said to them, we want our magazine to feel like it was mailed back from the future. <laughs> and that's got to be one of the best lines I've ever heard. Because they could have said, our magazine is about tracking trends in entertainment, design, and technology. And they probably wouldn't have got any interest in that meeting. Yeah. But by saying mail back from the future, the, the investors literally said, how much money do you need? <laughs> yeah. Do you think that, like, I, it, that line is so perfect. Um, do you think that was just uh, something that was thrown out, or was that sweated over and really thought about and considered? I think they really thought about that. I think that line's too good. I think they really, really thought about that. Maybe somebody, you know, when they're brainstorming, just said, hey, what if we said... It should feel like it was mailed back from the future, and they all went, yes. Yeah. I think that, that process probably happened. 
Because that, the great thing about that elevator pitch is how compelling the language is. Immediately, they, the, and the reason the investors reacted so quickly was because in that instant they understood what that magazine was going to be, why it was different, and that the founders had a vision for it. Mm-hmm. I'm. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about language because I. Um, I'm a highlighter when I read a book. I just hi- I yep. ruin them with my highlighter. And yep. uh, this I know is uh, just littered with yellow. And let me read a couple things. Here. Okay. Okay. But but along the way, adjectives got tossed around too casually, like Sinatra throwing twenties around in a nightclub. Or humor's the WD-40 of advertising. Yeah. All advertising's an interruption, but humor can open a lot of, uh, of uh, sticky doors. Now, there's there's not only great ideas in there, but the language is is phenomenal. How how hard is it to for? I mean, your background is is uh, writing. Yeah. How hard is it for business owners to really dig into, or how do they find those words and that language? Well, that's a good question. I think it's probably a case-by-case basis, David. There isn't just one all-general, all-purpose answer to that question. But I mm-hmm. think, I think again, great marketers are curious, and I think great marketers are smart marketers, rather. Even if you're small, if you're a one-person organization, because so many people, because of technology, can work from home now. So there's a lot of companies that are literally one person. I think the the smartest marketers are curious, and by that I mean they read and they listen and they talk and they ask questions. And I think by doing all of that, you can gather some great language. You can, or you can see great language at work when you see that wired elevator pitch. It's it's inspiring. Mm-hmm. You go when you look at that pitch. You go, oh, okay, I get how succinct it has to be, and I get how the language is so important. So it can be inspiring for, for you to. You know, like my my back my um, elevator uh, pitch for my radio show is that I give you a backstage pass to the closed world of advertising. Yeah, I love so that. So it's just it has it should always be intriguing. The line that that compelling thing about your company should be about what makes you you unique, and also it should make it should be intriguing so people want to know more. So I think gathering language, looking, reading. I'm a huge reader. I'm a voracious reader. I'm always reading. And is there any kind of litmus test that a person could get to find out if that's um, if the if it's doing what it needs to do? You mean once they've written an elevator pitch to decide yeah. whether it's good or not? Well, I think it's to try it out on people. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you say to somebody, you know, you can test it within your organization. But I think the big test is probably outside your organization to say to people, you know, do do an interesting little straw test and say, what, what do you think of this? If I said to you, my company was this, blah, 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 what do you think? And if people said, wow, I love that, or they go, uh, I guess so, <laughs> you'll, you'll, you can gauge the reaction. Again, the litmus test is, is it intriguing? Do you see people's eyebrows kind of pop up a little bit and, and lean in a little bit closer? And then um, once you have that that elevator pitch or you know what business you're in it really um as you describe in the book allows you i guess although it seems restrictive it allows you much more freedom in what you can market or how you can do your advertising and and the opportunities that are open for you what is the problem that you see with most advertising today why is it so bad that's a very good question i get asked that a lot as you can imagine i think I think, uh, and I, I, um, I mean to say it's such a valid question. That's when I, when I say I get asked that a lot. It's so valid. Um, 
I think with, with, with marketers who have agencies, although this book is not aimed at that, but I'm going to start there for a second, mm-hmm. they don't really want creativity. They say they do, but they don't really want it. Because the biggest fight in an agency, and I've spent my career in, that, in the middle of that fight, that skirmish, the biggest, the biggest fight in, in an agency world is trying to get the client to do something creative. That's where that's where the, the the big that's where they 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 ram heads all the time on that issue way more than on the issue of compensation and, and commission. It is trying to convince the client to do something creative because the fresher the idea, the more it scares the client. So you've got that that scenario where an agency is trying to do something creative because remember that at the higher realms of marketing, marketing is not about selling stuff. Marketing is about differentiating your product. Because once you differentiate your company or your product, then the selling really starts. Bad marketers just sell. It's just hard sell. In all their marketing, it's hard selling. And that's what annoys people because there's no creativity there. Smart marketers wrap their selling message with some creativity. So number one, it breaks through the clutter because there's just so much clutter now, especially online. If you think there's clutter in radio and television, look online. It's, it's, yeah. You know, it's by, by um, times a million, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, a creative idea helps you break through the clutter. A creative idea helps you create a brand because it's got personality. It's got, uh, you know, there's some tension in the work. There's, some, there's something intriguing. There's something surprising. And it makes people look at a company in a new way. Oh, I never thought about that company like that before. That's interesting, like that kind of a reaction. And I think at the end of the day, a piece of creative advertising is memorable. So I may see your ad today, but I'm not in the market for your product for three months. But if that creative was good, it may stick with me. So when I'm in the store three months later looking at the insulation wall and I see a you know, pink insulation there and I saw a great you know, fiberglass pink commercial, I'll reach for that product. That's how and it, it works. And it brings you some familiarity to the product. You know, yeah. In in advertising, and I don't want to get too much into agency world, but we're often accused of, and I see it a lot as well, of um, creativity for creativity's sake, or not really being strategic or thinking about um, the selling or the client, but just creativity so we can be creative. Is that maybe one of the reasons why uh, clients don't listen to their agencies, or that? I think well. I think the answer to that is what you said, though. It's creativity with a strategic underpinning is the ultimate ad. Mm-hmm. Creativity with no strategic underpinning is, is like a, 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 as I say in the book, it's like a beautifully wrapped gift with nothing inside it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, a recent episode, I don't know if you heard it, about the Cannes Advertising Festival, was really, mm-hmm. I, I focused on that topic, is, is award-winning advertising effective? And my answer to that always is, when I hear people or even clients scoff at awards or clients saying the creativity is getting in the way of the, of the product, you know, those, those usual criticisms. I always say if, if, the strate- if the strategy underneath it all is, is really smart and then we've put a creative selling idea on top of it, that is the ultimate ad. When I hear cr- uh, the criticism that it's just creativity for creativity's sake, that suggests to me that there's no strategy at work. Mm-hmm. Why does why does emotion work in advertising? I I think it's because I'm a big believer in this. I think it's because emotion provokes a visceral reaction. 
and a visceral reaction. If you can get somebody to feel something about your message or feel something about your company, the chances that they will actually act on the commercial or on the message goes, gets, is, is, is much higher. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> if people just intellectually understand your message but they don't feel anything, the chances of them acting on it are very low. So I think emotion is the great motivator. That if you can attach, and emotion's got lots of levels. That means, you know, you can make someone laugh, you can make someone smile, you can create empathy, sympathy, you can create surprise, you can create drama, you can create, there's all sorts of levels when I say emotion. But there's some feeling in your gut. It's not just an intellectual exercise. And can it be as simple as just a little chuckle? Like I think of, um, you know, is there a place for product and price commercials? Well, I guess, again, that's a case-by-case situation, depending on the category. The problem with that is, then, if you're just price an item, then then it's a race to the bottom. Yeah. It's just the lowest price wins, and then the lower price than that tomorrow wins, and the lower price than that the next day wins, and then somebody's losing. Your margins are shrinking. So I, I would never suggest to a client to just go in with price an item, unless it's just some category where there's only two competitors or like i i would really have to think hard about where that would work constantly to build a Mm -hmm. brand um yeah yeah for sure what i um your book um is not just about advertising i think i mean it's about marketing which is uh something i really liked i i enjoyed that you explored all areas of marketing like the importance of service and we we're hearing a lot about that and um i I wonder if you could touch on why that's important customer service i think customer service is marketing so my big point in the book is on that is it really shouldn't be two separate departments in a company really they should really be sharing the same office space or the same you know they should be really working in tandem i think nothing says more about a company than the way they treat their customers. Way more than marketing. Marketing's like a big promise and, and customer service is the fulfillment. So we're at the end of the day, how a company treats its customers is marketing. And when you think about that, uh, as a marketer, I think that's a powerful thing. For example, if a company, if you, if you have a, a business and you have three or four major competitors that are bigger than you, deeper pockets, bigger companies, I think one of the ways you can really compete with them is on customer service. Because a lot of big companies can't bend down far enough to see their customers. And a smaller company really has that face-to-face uh, ability. And I think if you give exquisite, you know, over-the-top customer service, you could be a major competitor to a much bigger company. And I think you, you start to use that as a marketing thing. I'm going to market my company through how I treat my customers. That becomes the thing, and that becomes the word of mouth that customers talk about, the same way they would talk about a great ad. You get recommended by people. You know, I've never been treated so good as that company. You've got go, you to go do business with them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a form of marketing. Yeah, we keep hearing word of mouth is probably the most reliable or uh, trusted source of of uh, a recommendation. Who's especially doing in your... a digital? Especially, sorry to interrupt. Especially yeah, yeah, in the no. digital age, probably more than ever with all the you know online reviews and likes, and I think that really is the coin or the currency of of online of the online world now. Is is you get to see so many reviews. Yeah, absolutely. Who's doing it well? Who do you see in the markets that are are really nailing that? Customer service. Yes. 
Well, I, I give examples in the book. Um, I think there's companies like, uh, the, the, there's a lot of hotels that do it really well, and they're usually the higher-end hotels. And I, mm-hmm. I, I talk about the, the Four Seasons being so customer service focused. And I talk about the fact that they have a, uh, a glitch meeting every morning where they have all the department heads gather every single morning and they go over a list of glitches. In other words, where are all the things that we screwed up yesterday with customers? And I, think that's a very, I don't think a lot of companies would do that. Then they look for ways to make, make up with the customer. So if, a, you know, if the customer, I say one story in the book where a customer was waiting for an important fax for a meeting and it didn't get to, the, to him in time, so he complained to the front desk. And then the next morning they were talking about you know, the fact they let that customer down and then you know, the, the driver, uh, that had, you know, the guy that in charge of all the, the hotel's automobiles said, hey, you know what, that same customer has made a, a reservation at a, a, a restaurant tonight. Why don't we make one of our town cars available to him? And they said, no, that's good. So they just find ways to make it up to the customer, and then suddenly when they make a town car available for a customer and his wife to go out for dinner, the fax problem evaporates. And I think that's a smart customer service. They're really tr- trying to really get inside their customers' minds and to really make an effort. And that's really what customer service is all about. It's making an effort, not just doing the minimum. And I always say go the extra inch. It's the smallest things that matter the most. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's, it's knowing that when you check into a hotel, they know you've been there before. You you wanted a foam pillow instead of a feather pillow. Pillow when they made a note of that, they say, "Mr. O'Reilly, we've got a foam pillow waiting for you." And I think, wow, I can't believe they actually remembered that about me. Especially when it scales up, right? Like when you're yeah. in a in a larger in a larger organization, it's so it always is so amazing to have an experience like that. It's funny. Well, how, I, always, I always walk away from that kind of an experience shocked. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it happens so rarely. That's, that's yeah. how rare great customer service is, right? Yeah, I always see it um, in like we have a little uh, deli here in in Regina, and uh, every time you walk in, Carlo, the uh, owner is smiling. I don't know if he really remembers me or not, but it's a big wave, and he's like, "Hey, how you doing?" <laughs> it's like it just feels great, and it's such a little thing that uh, that we it's could a do. Tiny for- thing, right? Yeah, we have a we have a restaurant in our area that I mentioned too. That uh, it's it's a little pub, and it's you know it's it's rustic, and the food is good, and and it's small. But the the owners know our names, and they're always happy to see us, and they remember everything about us. And and uh, we go there more there than any other restaurant. We have lots of great restaurants in our area, but we go there because that touch, that small little thing about remembering our names. It's like cheers, yeah. right? The go where yeah, everybody yeah. knows your name. Yeah. It's such a huge thing, and they get so much business from us. And the, and they're really sincere about it. They're not. It's not just, you know, trying to uh, to impress us. They're they're genuine people with genuine customer service. Yeah, I want to come back to something you um, one of your earlier chapters in the book, and you talk about businesses and and finding an area of opportunity or their area of opportunity. Do you have any advice for businesses on how to do that or how they can where to look? Or I think uh, a lot of small companies in particular try and do too much sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, and I saw this often where they would be creating a radio campaign, for example, and they'd be buying too many stations. So they have a limited budget and they decide to buy time on six stations very lightly instead of maybe it, you know buying heavily on three stations which I would much prefer to do because I don't think people 
hear your commercials nearly as much as you think they do. So you need a, you do need repetition, and that's why you need creativity because repetition gets pretty dull if there isn't mm-hmm. any creativity there. So in media buys, I see people missing their greatest area of opportunity. A lot of times, uh, who you, how do you grow your business? So custom, you know, if you if you say to somebody, or if you are a business owner and you say, I want to grow my business, where's that business going to come from? You really have to, you know, customers don't materialize out of pixie dust. They have to come from somewhere, and they usually have to come from a competitor. If they're doing business with a competitor, you have to try and attract them to you. So you have to have a strategy on how to do that. Or, you know, one of my favorite strategies is the greatest area of opportunity could be getting your current customers to spend more money with you. Instead of that constant search for new customers, yeah. see if you can convince your, your current clientele to visit you more often or buy your product more often or, or do business with you more often. What if, all your, what if your current clientele, all your current clientele did business with you one more time a month? Yeah. That might be huge business for you, and that's a warm call and not a cold call. So that might be your greatest area of opportunity. Most, I, and I say this because most small advertisers default to always trying to find new customers, which is the most expensive marketing proposition there is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's funny. I think, again, of that little Italian deli. Because every time you walk in, he's always got something else that, hey, we just got these olives in. Yeah, well, you want to yeah. try them? <laughs> just right. make an he's offer, a, right? Yeah. Like, he's, he, you know, he's... He's a good marketer. He's a, he's a, he understands his business, and, and he and who knows the incremental revenue he might get from from suggesting something different or or an additional little something to your plate, right? Yeah. Um, I always uh, I, 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 time flies very quickly, especially talking talking with you. And I usually end by asking, um, you know, what lessons you've learned. But I feel like you've you've written the whole book on the lessons that you've learned. <laughs> yeah. I think I think the, if you're going to ask me the biggest lesson, I think it's that um, in marketing, in a marketing context, I think I think it's to be bold, especially for small to medium marketers and advertisers and businesses. I think that the real secret is to be bold in your marketing. That is that doesn't mean to be sophomoric or or uh, questionable taste. That just means to be bold. Don't don't be passive or. You know, don't, as I say, don't whisper 10 things. Say one thing loudly. Be bold with your marketing because that way you'll differentiate your business. You'll break through the clutter. You'll probably be memorable and people will want to do business with you. It's like, think about the the most, you know, famous hockey players, the most famous actors. There, there's something bold about their play or about their method or about their performance that you remember. And I think that applies to marketing. That's uh, That's great advice. Your book is called This I Know, Marketing Lessons from Under the Influence. And Terry, I imagine that's available pretty much everywhere. It is. It is. And if people want to hear more from you, uh, how, do they, how do they connect? Well, uh, my radio show, uh, we're coming to the end of our 2017 season, but we air uh, Thursdays and Saturday mornings at 11.30 a.m. on CBC across the country. We will be uh, re-airing our 10 most popular episodes this summer, so we won't be disappearing from the airwaves. We'll be on most of the summer. And then we're back on the air in January. So the radio show is a January to June airing every Thursday and Saturday. You can uh, find all the shows on our website, which is cbc.ca slash under the influence. You can stream all the shows there. 
At the end of the season, you can buy the entire season on iTunes. I think it's about nine ninety nine or something for for twenty five episodes. And uh, and then I have a website, terryoreilly.com, where I put up I post interesting things and little musings and little tidbits about marketing and Twitter, Instagram. We're on all the social media, so there's lots of ways to, to stay in touch with us and to see some interesting marketing insights. It's always a great pleasure to talk to you. I really appreciate you taking some time for me. Thanks very much, Terry. My pleasure, David. It was a great talk. I enjoyed that. And that's the show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Join me again next week. And remember to subscribe on iTunes or through Stitcher or your favorite podcast app. Lessons Learned in Marketing is the Phoenix Group Podcast. Music from Six Degrees in Calgary. Talk to you next week.